Well, um, it was a couple of weeks ago that I, I asked because of all the things that we see going on in the world, would you be interested in taking a couple of weeks and talking about some very specific prophecies that Jesus gave that would refer to what we would call the end times? And you wrote down on your connection card and you said, yes, we would. And so today we're going to, we're going to do that. Now, as we, we do that, I want you to know that, that this is going to go uh, this way this week and another way next week. First of all, because this week is Halloween, you know that, uh, today's Bible study is going to be the single weirdest Bible study you have ever heard in church, I promise. And so, uh, so it, are you up for a little weird today? Okay, good. So say, so, so give me some weird. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to do that today. Now, next week, if you come back... Uh, <laughs> is going to be the single most politically incorrect Bible study that you've ever had. So the weirdest today, the most politically incorrect next week. So there's going to be something to offend uh, just about everybody as we travel through. Now what we're going to talk about today, and I want you to turn to Matthew 24, is very important because uh, we're going to share some things this week and next week that Jesus points out as, as references that many people in today's church uh, look at, and uh, even though Jesus says this is how it is, many people say, well, I don't, I don't believe that. And, uh, and the reason for that is that you and I, for the most part, we, we, we grew up in a generation that when we came to church, the Bible was all about financial principles, relationship principles, uh, doing good things, social justice, and all that. And so we forget that the Bible talks a great deal about prophecy, and the great thing about Bible prophecy is that it so far has been 100% accurate, and that's what God said. The way that you'd know it's from Him is that it would be 100% accurate. So the Bible talks about things to come, and God tells us before they take place what's going to happen, but the Bible also lays out things of how they were and then how they will be. And that'll be the part that will be very, very foreign to our ears today. So um, we are going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 24 as uh, we we consider a few things, and then we'll jump back to Genesis chapter 6. So it's a few days before Jesus goes to the cross, and in verse 1 of chapter 24 of Matthew it says, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. This is very shocking to the disciples because in their world the temple was everything. I mean that's how you knew that God was with you. That's where you went to worship God. And so to hear that the temple is going to be destroyed, which it was in 70 AD. And we'll talk about that as we travel. So they wait till they're alone with Jesus and they come to him privately. And they ask him three questions. And uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 3. It says, And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things happen? That is, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And then what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So they're, they're asking three questions. When will these things take place? And then the sign of the coming, your coming, and the end of the age. They have rightfully attached his coming with the end of the age. Now Jesus is going to take the rest of the chapter very specifically and he's going to answer those questions. Sign of his coming and the end of the age is what we're going to focus in on mostly. So 
before we go any further, as Jesus responds to this, the, the first thing that I want to say is Jesus is about to respond to these three questions. And what we're going to find is when they say, tell us about the, t- you know, the sign of your coming and the end of the age. Jesus does not say, don't focus in on that. I mean, why are you worried about that? Don't think about those things. I mean, it's, it's not really a big deal. You know, it all pans out in the end, you know, so just don't even get that a lot of attention. Jesus doesn't say that. We're going to see in verse 4, Jesus says, there in your outline, Jesus answered and said to them, see to it, and it's very emphatic, see to it, that no one misleads you. How many of your Bibles say no one deceives you? So your Bibles will say mislead or deceives. And uh, the, the idea is that, that he says, I'm going to answer your question, Sign of my coming, end of the age, but make sure that no one deceives you, no one misleads you. Apparently this is important stuff that we're not to be deceived or misled about. So when Jesus says this, the idea also is that when he gives the information, we're now responsible. We're we're responsible to have this, this information. So he's going to begin answering the question, and he's going to start with an overview. Now verse 5 and 6 is an overview, begins the overview, and it says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead, some of your Bibles will say, deceive many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not afraid. And I've underlined that you are not afraid, for these things must take place, but that is not the end. That is not the end. As a believer, there's two things that we get from that. First of all, we're not to be misled about these things. We're to understand these things. The second thing that we get is as we see these things taking place, as believers, we are not to be afraid of these things. I'm going to suggest that only those who are misled or deceived about these things are actually afraid of these things. Maybe that'll make more sense as uh, we travel through. And then he says, but these things must take place. And he's going to outline a few things that must take place. You and I live in an age where it's, it's very popular, even among the church, uh, when we talk about these things uh, the, the common teaching is these things will not take place. They must not take place. But I'm here to tell you, Jesus says, certain things that we're talking about will take place. They're, they're just absolutely going to happen. Verse 7 and 8, he says, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. Now, uh, where it says famines, how many of your Bibles say famines and pestilences together? Now, there's a reason for that, and that's actually a good thing. It's actually one word in the original language, but you can translate that word as famine or pestilence. And so in order to bring out what it's talking about, they just use pestilence and famines together. So, so that's the idea. So here you have, um, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But these are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And I've, and I've underlined the, the word birth pangs. So he says there's going to be wars, there's going to be rumors of wars. You know, in, in our country right now, we're at war in Afghanistan, just our country. Uh, Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, uh, we found out just a couple of weeks ago, we actually got some things going on in Africa. And if you know anything about the, the military and the special operations community, you know that we are all over the place. And so there's a lot going on, things that we know about, things that we don't know uh, about, but there's, there's a lot going on. So you have wars, you have rumors of wars. You know, rumors of wars. Are we going to war with North Korea or are we not? Doesn't it seem like every couple of years we're at the brink of war with North Korea? And uh, so it's a rumor of war. You're going to hear more and more. These things are going to increase. But Jesus says they're going to be like birth pangs. And I love that he uses that because 
he likens it and he says, it's going to be like birth pangs. Now, uh, ladies, you know this, and, and guys, if you're dad, you've certainly seen this, but typically the way it takes place is when a woman gets pregnant, you have a, a very long pregnancy, you know, nine months of pregnancy. Sometimes in that nine months, you have some false starts as far as labor is concerned. Things, you know, you feel like it's, it's, it's happening, but, but, you know, you find out that it's not. But there comes a point, at a certain point, where labor kicks in. And when labor kicks in, what takes place is that the contractions become closer and closer together and more and more intense. So ladies, if you had your first baby, uh, you know, you go in and labor's kicked in and you tell the nurse, you say something like, I am dying. And the nurse says something like, honey, you ain't seen nothing yet. You know, it's going to get worse and worse as you go. Well, that's kind of how it's going to be. So if you were to look at our world, you'll recall that it was in the 1860s we had the Civil War. That was bad, just in our country. But that was nothing compared to World War I. That was really bad. But that was nothing compared to World War II, which was really bad. And so the idea is that these things will continue, they will increase. It was in 2004 that we, as a population, had never in our lifetime seen a tsunami. And, uh, and so we were aghast as we saw on the news, 300,000 people perish. And so we said, well, it's on the other side of the world. You know, but it was in 2011 that in Japan, there's actually a video that you can go on on YouTube and it says five tsunamis caught on video. And, and uh, it shows these things wiping out. There have been a number of them since 2004 that have literally wiped out villages, wiped out towns. And, and, you know, but these things are in, increasing. So these things are like birth pangs. Uh, these that he's talking about here, they, they are not the sign of his coming, but these are the things that will continue to increase closer and closer together with greater and greater intensity. So Jesus is going to continue over the next few verses, continuing with the, um, with the overview, but I'm going to take a little bit of a detour. All the way back, about 800 years B.C., God is speaking through the, nation of, uh, through the prophet Isaiah concerning the, the nation of Israel. And God, speaking through Isaiah, says this. And I want you to underline a few things. I put it there in your outline from Isaiah 11. And it says, then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again, and I've underlined again, recover the second, underlined second time, with his hand the remnant of his people, small amount of his people. Apparently there were more, but at this point there's just a remnant. Who will remain? Something has happened, but this is all that's left. And we'll talk about that. And he will call them from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, which is modern day Iraq, Hamath, and from the, I've underlined, islands of the sea. In ancient Israel, in ancient Hebrew, there's not really a word for other continents. So the closest word that you could use would be the islands of the sea. Those who are across the sea from a very, very far place. And then it goes on to say, and he, that's God, will lift up the standard for the nations and will assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So God says in 800 BC, says there's going to come a time when I'm going to bring God's people back, or Israel back into the land the second time. And we underline the word second. At that time, Israel had not been removed from the land the first time. 
it would be about 300 years in the future from Isaiah's writing that we have what we call the Babylonian conquest, where where, uh, the nation of Israel is literally uprooted from Israel and taken to Babylon. And it's in that time that we have those great stories about Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so that's, that's what took place in the first time. But then after a while, God brings the nation of Israel back into the land. So when does God remove the nation of Israel the second time? Well, they're removed the second time. Second time, it, it'll be 800 years after Isaiah writes this, about 500 years after the Babylonian captivity. The nation of Israel is under Roman rule. And in 70 AD, the Roman general Titus Vespasian, this is just a matter of world history, comes into Israel, Jerusalem specific, destroys Jerusalem, tears down the temple, burns down the temple. They literally take every stone apart in the temple. It's a very interesting story. And it's at that time that the nation of Israel ceases to exist as a nation. And so they move out into every other part of the world. Some go down into Africa, some go to Europe when the new world is discovered, ultimately coming over to the new world. And so for 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years, the nation of Israel is not a nation. So it's, it's a, a group of people who exist, but not in their homeland. Now, the Bible talks about how the nation of Israel would become a nation again. This seems so incredible, so impossible, that the church began to read this and say, well, this is allegorical, it's symbolic. God's not really going to bring the nation back into the land. But in 1948, as God said the nation of Israel, the remnant, those who remain, went back into the land. When it says those who remain, something really bad had to happen where there wasn't that many. Many of them died. What happened just before 1948? That it would be those who remain. It would be the Holocaust. And so in 1948, Israel moves back into the land. Israel is the only Plant, or is the only nation on the planet in the history of the world that ever has gone out of its homeland, stays out of its homeland for even a generation, but we're talking almost 2,000 years, to then go back into its homeland and become a nation again. So back to our story in Matthew. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, what is the sign of your coming? And uh, Jesus would say, well, so here's some non-signs. You know, you've got earthquakes and famines and war. These are non-signs, but these things are going to increase like birth pangs. And so now Jesus says, so let me answer your question. What is the sign of my coming? We're going to pick it up in verse 32. And I put verse 32 and 33 on your outline. You can read them in your Bible or, or on the outline. I'll read from the outline. Verse 32, Jesus says, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and it puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near. How near? Right at the door. And I've underlined that, right at the door. The reason I put that on your outline is in the Bible when the fig tree is used as a symbol, it's typically used as the nation of Israel. It's it's a symbol for the nation of Israel. And uh, you can go to Hosea 9.10, I put that there, and you just say, my fig tree, Israel. It's, it's, it's very, very clear. So the idea in verse 32 says, learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. After a very long winter, 
the fig tree looks very, very dead. But in the early spring, that which looks very dead begins to come back to life. And when it begins to come back to life, it begins to put forth its leaves and its branches. So it, it looked dead, but it, but it really wasn't. Verse 33, uh, verse 32, he says, when its branches are to become tender, it puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. The idea is that the next season is right around the corner. The next event is about to take place. So Israel is going to look dead for a very long period of time, almost 2,000 years. They cease to exist as a nation. But at a certain point, they're going to come back to life. When you see that, then you know that he is near. How near? Right at the door. He's right at the door. Uh, verse 34, I'm going to read it on, in, in our Bibles. It says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, when he says this generation, he's not talking about the generation 2,000 years ago because they didn't see any of these things take place. It would be the generation that sees the fig tree come back to life. Israel become a nation again. He says this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What things taking place? Him standing right at the door. Uh, my mom was eight years old in 1948, and uh, you know, so that generation has not passed away. You know, she's still going, that generation is still going, but that generation will not pass away until all these things take place. It's at this point that you and I might look on and say, well, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard, and Jesus knows that, so he continues with verse 35, and he says, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The idea is that you can take this to the bank. So verse 36, he says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. The idea is that Jesus tells us that generation will not pass away, but we will not know the day or the hour. We'll know the generation, we won't know the day or the hour. So then he takes his answer, uh, uh, just a of the sign a little step further. Verse 37 he says, for the coming of the Son of Man will be, and in my translation it says, just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Uh, most did not understand what was taking place in the time of Noah. Most would miss it. And we'll talk about that as uh, we travel through. Um, Before we go to Genesis, two things here, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, you have him on the one hand at the beginning of the chapter saying it will be like birth pangs. You're going to have wars and rumors of wars. And then over here, the days of Noah, you have they'll be buying, selling, giving, and marriage. And I, I shared with you how as Hurricane Irma was coming through a few weeks ago, we were in Long Island, we were celebrating the marriage of our oldest son uh, the same day that Irma's coming through. So on the one hand, there's that uh, giving in marriage, taking marriage, buying and selling. We're all, we're all looking at our smartphones as we're watching Irma come through. And so we live in the only generation where you can see these things take place. On the one hand, the rejoicing, the, the celebration. On the other hand, the catastrophe that was, that was looming. Unfortunately, it didn't hit us as, as hard as, as we thought. 
But what I would say by that is that because he says they'll be buying and selling, giving in marriage, taking in marriage, you don't need to build a bunker. But you might want to prepare for some of these birth pangs that come through, that, you know, the disruptions and things like, like that. Well, I, I want you to notice where this part ends. We're going to pick it up in verse 40. It says, so then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Now, uh, next week we're going to be in Luke's gospel. Luke's going to say the same thing, but he's going to add a line that says two will be in bed, one will be taken, and the other will be left. And when it says two men in the field, that's daytime. Two women grinding, grinding the meal. That was something that women did in the early morning. Two in bed would be night. You have a worldwide event, day, morning, night, one will be taken, one will be left. We refer to that as the rapture of the church. And that's a fascinating conversation. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to talk about it when we come back to Matthew 24 and uh, when, we, when, when we get there. On your outline, I put verse 37 of Matthew 24, and it says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. This week we're talking about the days of Noah. Now Jesus says it will be just like it was in the days of Noah. He never says it will be like the days of Isaiah or the days of Ezekiel or the days of David. He says it will be like the days of Noah and it will be like the days of Lot. We'll look at the days of Noah this week. We'll look at the days of Lot next week. So I want you to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 6. Uh, the days of Noah gets one chapter, and what we're going to find is that it's business as usual in a very strange period of time. So what was going on? And remember I told you this is going to be the weirdest Bible study you've ever had, so here we begin. Verse six, uh, verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land that daughters were born to them. So one of the things that we're going to find is there's going to be a population explosion. Go ahead and write that down. Population explosion. From the time that Noah gets off the ark till the time of our civil war, that's the time that it takes for our planet to get to one billion people. So almost 4,000 years to get to a billion people. From the time of our civil war in the 1860s to the 1930s, 1935, the, the world in less than 70 years goes from 1 billion people to 2 billion people. 30 years after that, from 1935 to 1965, the world goes to 3 billion people. 30 years after that, 1995, uh, the world doesn't go to another billion, it doubles. We go to 6 billion people and we're way over 7 billion right now. So it, it's a time when men are multiplying on the face of the earth. So tuck that away. Well, here's where it gets very interesting. Uh, some might th think it's a little bit odd or weird, but I think it's absolutely fascinating. So verse 1, I'm going to read it again. It says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land that daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, they're very different, were beautiful, and they took, and your Bible probably says wives, uh, the word is woman. They took women for themselves is the idea whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth. How many of your Bibles say giants? 
Okay, good. Uh, either way, Nephilim or giants were on the earth in those days, and I want you to underline where it says, and also afterward. Also afterward. Whatever's happening there is something that's going to happen in the future. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, and those were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And we'll talk about that. So I'm, I'm going to oversimplify what's going on here. Uh, so, so write this down. They began to mix and alter the DNA. Something is uniting with the daughters of men, and it's changing the DNA. When it says the sons of God, the, the Hebrew word there is Benai Elohim, and uh, in Genesis that's referring to what we would call fallen angels. So uh, you, you, Benai Elohim just means angels. We're going to find that these are fallen angels and they've done something that is uh, very bizarre. So the question is, if I haven't lost you yet, can angels do that? Well, uh, interesting thing that in the New Testament there's a day when the Sadducees come to Jesus and they, they present this scenario and they say, you know, there was this guy and he was married to this girl and they didn't have a baby and so nobody to carry on the family name. So he dies and so she takes the next brother, he dies, takes the next brother and on and on and on and on. So the big question is, well, who's she going to be married to in heaven? And Jesus responds and he says this there on your outline. It says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like, and I want you to underline, angels in heaven. So Bible scholars look at that and they ask, why does Jesus feel the need to say they're like angels in heaven? Why doesn't he just say they're like angels? So the Bible teaches that there are fallen angels and that there are angels in heaven. Well, interesting also, there's this tiny little book called Jude. Jude is considered the introduction to the book of Revelation. And Jude adds a little bit of commentary there in your outline. And it says, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Some of these angels abandoned their proper abode. Their proper abode is the spiritual realm. And apparently they entered into uh, the physical realm, which they were not supposed to. And they did something that was so bad that God decided to keep them in bonds, prison, until the day of judgment. So what angels then are now in prison being held until the day of judgment? Well, Peter says this there in your outline. Peter says it like this. In which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. So Genesis tells us that they left their proper abode, they cohabitated with the daughters of men, uh, females, and that produced a result. Now verse 4 tells us what that result was. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The word Nephilim in your Bible is the word Nephalim. M is always a plural in Hebrew. Nephal just means fallen. Nephilim means fallen ones. So you want to write that down, it means fallen ones. Some of your Bibles have the word giants, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Since they weren't really human, 
They couldn't be saved. Their, their DNA was no longer human, but they also weren't angelic. So uh, they couldn't be in that realm. When it says that they were men of renown, if you look at that word in the original language, it means to be a tyrant or to be a bully. It doesn't mean that they were great people. I mean, they, were, they, were, they were evil. So it was about 300 years before Jesus was born and the world began to speak Greek. When the world began to speak Greek, the Jewish leadership felt that the people needed a Bible in their own language. So they translated the Bible from Hebrew into the Greek language. When they translated this verse, their understanding 300 years before Christ, they translated it like this there in your outline from what's called the Septuagint. Now the giants were upon the earth in those days and after that, which is why some of your Bibles have the word giants there as opposed to Nephilim. You and I might look on and we might discount this. We might say, well that's just the craziest thing I've ever heard. Well, Anytime you go back into a culture, into their lore, their history, their stories that they tell, what you find universally in every culture, you have stories of the giants who lived way back when. If you have this culture points to giants and you have another culture on the other side of the world that has no connection with this culture and they tell the same stories, you have to stop and ask, why is it that they all have the same stories. All cultures around the world point back to the history and they tell the same stories. So you, you took uh, Greek mythology in uh, high school or college and these things were called the Titans. Do you remember that? Well linguists look on at that and they say the word Titan, I put this there in your outline, actually comes from a much older word uh, from the Chaldean and that word was shaitan, from Titan to shaitan. And, uh, but the word shaitan actually comes from a much older language, which is Hebrew, and the word there is Satan. You want to write that down. So it goes from Satan to shaitan to titan. Same word. Same word. Verse 4 it says, and afterward. Afterward. Well, it's a long time afterward. The nation of Israel has been enslaved in Egypt. They come out and they're going into the promised land. And when they go into the promised land, one of the things that they, they encounter in the book of Numbers there in your outline, it says there also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, underline the word Anak, are part of the Nephilim, they're part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight and so we were in their sight. The idea is these, these guys are pretty big. They weren't quite human, there's a mixture in the DNA. And, uh, but what I find interesting there it says the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. Anak was the beginner, uh, the, the beginning of this group, a, a race or a tribe. Uh, in Hebrew, M is tacked on as a plural. We tack an S on something and it makes it plural. In that language, M means it's plural. So Anakim is a tribe. Well, it's interesting that the word Anakim, if I put that there on your outline from any Bible dictionary, it just means this, long-necked, a race of giants, descendants of Anak. Does everybody see that? You ever seen the old hieroglyphics, the old pictures, and you'll see at times a head and there'll be a, a real long neck? And we go, oh, that's just an, you know, an artist's rendition. No, that's one of the sons of Anak, the long necks that the Bible talks about. Do you find that at least interesting? I mean, it is Halloween, come on. So, it's, so 
Now, they go into the promised land, and in Deuteronomy it says, King Og of Bashan was the last of the giant Rephaites. His iron bed was more than 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. Jesus says it's going to be just the same when he comes back as it was in the days of Noah. There was a commingling of the DNA with humans and something else. Uh, which is why God said in Genesis many times in the first couple of chapters they reproduce after their own kind, after their own kind, after their own kind. The idea is it's more than just a polite saying. The idea is we're not to mess with the DNA. You don't mix that. If uh, you were to go seven years ago and you were to go on your search engine on your computer and you were to type in a, a word, I put it on your outline, called transhumanism, you get about 25 hits. If you go on today and you type in transhumanism, you'll get about 25,000 hits. Because all over the world in laboratories, they are now combining human DNA with other types of DNA. Uh, here's an article out of England. It says, 150 human-animal hybrids grown in UK labs. Uh, embryos have been produced secretively for the past three years. And this article is actually old. It's actually going on a whole lot more. It's been uh, many hold that they are growing these things now in laboratories around the world where they don't have the ethics that we might have in this country to full maturity. And so uh, you're going to see more and more of that. I don't know that it means that there's going to be giants, but we're going to see a mixing of the DNA, and that's going to take place. Be just like it was in the days of Noah. A few years ago we were in the book of Daniel. We came to this great end times verse there on your outline. And uh, it says, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Whoever they are that want to mingle with the seed of men, they're not human, but they want to mingle. So, but it's not going to be something that works out very well. Just like the days of Noah. Verse 5 of Genesis 6, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And uh, I like uh, the King James Version, it says there in your outline, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So one of the things that's going to be like it was in the days of Noah, and you want to write this down, evil imagination. Since the time that Israel became a nation, you and I live in the only generation that we can imagine, participate in some very wicked things without actually participating. Uh, it can be just part of our imagination. Whether it's through the internet, pornography, and, and all of these things. There is a video game that Many of our children play, not my kids, uh, but it's called Grand Theft Auto. And in that game, uh, when you, uh, I don't really know how the game's played, so, uh, but the idea is part of that is you as the player have explicit um, physical experiences with uh, less than moral women, if I could say that. And it's very graphic. The thoughts of the imagination of the heart were continually to do evil. We live in the only generation where that takes place. Well, verse 6, this breaks God's heart and it says, The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Doesn't throw a temper tantrum, just breaks his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man on whom I have created on the face of the land, from the face of the land, 
from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I'm sorry that I have made them. Apparently, they've gone beyond where they could repent. The gene pool was so mixed that they were no longer completely, completely human. Some people look at this as God as being cruel. I view it more as a mercy killing. If uh, you have a dog in your family and that dog comes down with rabies, you call animal control, they come and they put down the dog. First, first of all, because the dog is beyond help. You, you can't help him at that point. And second of all, you want to stop the infection from spreading. So here God is being merciful and he's stopping that. Well, uh, going on verse 8, it says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I'll come back to verse 8. It says, I found favor. he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man and blameless. My translation says blameless. How many of your Bibles say perfect? Anybody say perfect? Okay. And uh, the word there means complete. And, and what it means in the original language is that Noah and his family were still fully human. They, they were not altered in any way. Verse 9, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and Noah walked with God. And Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Well, then we come to verse 11, and it says, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. I want you to underline the word violence. Violence was accelerating as it would be at the time that Jesus comes back. So maybe they were flying airplanes into buildings, maybe people were walking into movie theaters and shooting upwards of 70 people, maybe people were walking into clubs in Orlando and uh, shooting upwards of 100 and killing a number of those. Maybe it was that they were shooting from buildings and, and hitting 500 people and over 58 die, you know, things like that. So, so that violence was increasing. And what I want to tell you is that you live, you and I live in a time where many people will say, this is not going to increase, but it's going to increase. It's going to be just like it was in the days of Noah. But here's what I find so fascinating. In that verse where it says violence covers the earth, the Hebrew word for violence, I put it there in your outline, the earth was filled with violence. But the word in the original language for violence is the word Hamas. How many of you have ever heard of Hamas? Hamas is one of the largest terrorist groups specifically surrounding the nation of Israel. Uh, They are dedicated to the destruction, the annihilation of Israel and to anybody else who, who disagrees with them. In January of this year, Hamas graduated 13,000 young adults from its terror program, which was double what it graduated last year. Those who are being trained to go out and perpetrate jihad. Violence, or Hamas, will cover the earth. Hamas represents an ideology. It also represents a specific religion. So the question that I have Did the Lord have this word Hamas, be the Hebrew word for violence, as a coincidence, or did he tuck something back there as a clue so that you and I could look on and say Hamas is covering the earth? 
that religion, which by the way is now the fastest growing religion on the planet today. Do you find that interesting? So here, here's what I can tell you, that violence or Hamas is going to increase. And if you know that, uh, you, know, you want to think about things you do and what you do. We know the rest of the story of Noah. And so I want to wrap up with this, as, as, uh, and then we'll pick up next week. But, but um, just like the days of Noah, another part that we need to get, and you want to write this down, only a few would believe and prepare. When Noah gave the message, it wasn't that the people didn't hear it, but most didn't believe it. It's going to be just the same, Jesus says. There in your outline, Paul would say it like this, by faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah said, okay, Lord, you say it, I'll believe it, and I'll act on it. The part that hits me, Jesus says it will be just the same. Only a few will actually believe and prepare for what is coming on the earth. Noah's message was not, we are going to win this back. It's going to be the greatest thing ever. Noah's message was prepare for what is coming, which is definitely coming in the future. Most of the people in that day did not heed the message. They did not prepare. And, and again, here the message is not God has a wonderful plan for your life and a wonderful future. The message is something is coming. You need to be prepared. There is a part of this that I, as, again, as we wrap up, that I, I think it's important that we highlight. And you want to write this down. In the midst of that final generation, God called Noah to an incredible journey of faith to accomplish something great in his time. When society was going the opposite direction, God called Noah to trust him and accomplish something great. I love that verse. I said we come back to it in Genesis 6, 8. It says, Noah found, uh, your Bibles will say favor, but the word literally is Noah found grace in the eyes of Jehovah. I love that because it's very New Testament sounding. And to accomplish, write this down, God's purpose, God would need to provide, protect, and preserve Noah and his family. Noah's protection came through agreeing with God with what God said was going to happen and participating with God and preparing. Do you find that at least interesting today? Today is the weirdest Bible study you've probably ever heard but next week, I promise you, it's going to be the single most politically incorrect Bible study that you've ever heard, if you come back, if you come back. So let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Our prayer today is that we be like Noah in this time and generation in which we live, where you say it's going to be just the same. Help us to act appropriately and to prepare appropriately and live out the message that you have for us, the plan that you have for us. Give us wisdom as we go forward. Lord, the message in that time was to prepare. And so, Father, I pray that we prepare for what is coming. And Lord, use us to prepare those around us who desperately need to hear. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.